Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Disabled state residents may have a barrier to voting removed by a federal judge by next week, according to a report filed by the Associated Press. Earlier this year, the state Supreme Court ruled that only voters can return their ballot. The Election Commission followed that decision with a rule barring another person from bringing a ballot on behalf of another voter. A federal judge said yesterday, however, that he will issue a ruling next week that would exclude people with disabilities from that rule. He indicated that he wanted to see a revised rule in place by the November election. The state election board is unlikely to appeal the ruling. Dane County YMCA has announced that it it will not provide some after-school programs run by the West YMCA facility due to staff shortages, Channel 3000 reports. Managers at the Y said that they tried a number of recruitment tactics to staff their programs but were unsuccessful. They noted they currently have zero staff and zero applications for positions available at the West Side sites. The Madison Water Utility has filed a request for a 16.7% raise in rate increase for residential users to the Public Service Commission. If approved, it would raise the average monthly bill from $30 to $35. This assumes the average monthly use of 4,000 gallons. The last rate increase was in 2020 and was 8%. The Public Service Commission typically decides a case in a minimum of 90 days. It is likely that this rate increase would not go into effect uh, sooner than January 2023. A public hearing on the rate increase will be held at 10 a.m. on September 7th. For information on how to zoom in, go to the Water Utility webpage. The board of the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art issued a statement in defense of its management in the face of charges of racism made by black artists participating in the Triennial Exhibition. The artists denounced what they called, quote, shameful mistreatment of black artists, contractors, and staffers throughout the exhibition. Specifically, the artists said they were undercompensated and that the museum was ill-equipped to host the show. They cited the level of promotion and support that was given to other recent exhibitions and the museum's failure to follow its own security protocols. This came after Madison artist Lolata G. was verbally assaulted by an Overture Center employee while trying to enter the building and later had her unfinished art vandalized while it sat unattended. In a statement responding to the charges, the Board of Trustees of Momoka called the allegations unfounded and voiced their full support for Executive Director Christina Brungert and her staff. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. When someone is accused of a crime and they cannot afford a lawyer, a public defender is assigned to represent them. That's a basic right afforded in the Constitution. But amidst a shortage of public defenders, some are left in weeks of legal limbo as they wait to be assigned legal representation. A group of lawyers is seeking a solution to the problem inside the courtroom. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt takes it from here. A handful of defense lawyers are filing a class action lawsuit against the state saying some people who have been charged with a crime and can't afford a lawyer don't have access to timely legal representation. 
The lawsuit was filed in Brown County Court yesterday. It names Governor Tony Evers and the State Public Defenders Board as defendants. And it's calling for the state to either increase public defender staffing or dismiss criminal charges for people waiting long delays for representation. It was brought by two groups representing defense lawyers, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Attorney John Birdsall, who is representing the state professional lawyer group, says there's a backlog of people who have been charged and are waiting for legal representation, but an exact number is hard to come by. How, how many um, is anybody's guess? I, you know, you could say three, four. 5,000, who knows? Uh, we included um, with the lawsuit a spreadsheet showing the number of people just this summer that they couldn't find lawyers for. And um, the, the, the spreadsheet itself is 380 pages long, and that only covers about half the counties in Wisconsin. So it's, it, the problem is absolutely enormous. Everybody that works in the system, I mean everybody, they all know about it, whether you're in law enforcement or you're a judge or you're a prosecutor. Everybody knows the extent of the problem. Kelly Thompson, head of the state public defender's office, told the Wisconsin State Journal in April that staffing was down about 20 percent and that her office was facing a backlog of about 35,000 cases. The lawsuit was brought against the nine members of the state public defender's board in their official capacity, as well as Governor Tony Evers. But Birdsall says that they are not specifically to blame for the issue, even though they are the ones legally responsible. The state itself has an obligation to provide these lawyers, and they've chosen to create this public defender's office, which was a great idea, to provide poor people charged with crimes with with representation as is their constitutional right but the way that they have neglected it and underfunded it and uh has has created this problem so it's not necessarily the fault of the public defenders but that was the chosen vehicle and so now both those political branches are going to have to uh, take a serious look at how to build an actual working fair system for everyone involved Hank Schultz, another attorney on the case, says that the issues facing public defenders in Wisconsin are not new. We're not, we're not going to try to say that uh, we are requiring any particular formula. We are saying they have this obligation, they have to meet it. Uh, we brought this issue forward uh, in 2010 and in 2018 before the state Supreme Court, seeking uh, to have the court declare the... Um, uh, rate of compensation that was being paid at that time uh, to be unreasonable. They uh, declined to act. They did, uh, however, raise the, the rate that, that, that courts pay as opposed to the public defender system uh, to 100 an hour from 70. And um, But they also said at that time that there was a, a, a crisis emerging and uh, there was, you know, talk of getting it solved politically, otherwise it would have to be a lawsuit. Well, Nothing happened. The lawsuit was filed in Brown County on behalf of a handful of current and former incarcerated people. Last year, the Brown County Board of Supervisors called on both Governor Tony Evers and the state legislature asking them to take legal action in bringing more public defenders to the county. They pointed to some defendants who had to wait for more than 100 days to be assigned an attorney, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. 
Schultz says that they filed the lawsuit in Brown County specifically because of the actions by the Brown County Board. And they asked the governor and the legislature to take some action, and they didn't. And uh, the problem there is not only acute as we speak, but it's been chronic for a long time. And um, Brown County is as bad as any place in the state. The state public defender's office did not respond to requests for comment by airtime. A court date has not yet been set. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggy-Hout. State Democratic lawmakers and the Health Department have called upon the Budget Committee to release $6 million meant to combat the opioid epidemic. Here's our reporter, Tegan Carter. Wisconsin is slated to get $31 million in settlements from opioid manufacturers and distributors, the product of drawn-out lawsuits over the role they played in fueling the opioid epidemic. Wisconsin is expected to get all of that money by the end of this year. The first round of settlement money, $6 million, is being held up by the Republican-controlled Legislative Budget Committee. Today, Attorney General Josh Call called on that committee to stop stalling the money and get it into the hands of public health departments. Uh, The Joint Finance Committee objected anonymously uh, to the Department of Health Services proposal on the last day when they could object, and we still don't have a plan from them as to how to get these dollars to our communities. Um, This epidemic is having an impact on Wisconsinites right now, and we need to get these resources to Wisconsinites as soon as possible. So we are calling on the Joint Finance Committee to come back into session to act and to get resources to communities across Wisconsin. Seventy percent of the settlement funds are slated to go directly to counties and municipalities to assist with ongoing substance abuse efforts that for years have drained public health coffers. The other 30% is slated to go to the Department of Health Services. DHS Secretary Karen Timberlake says that the first part of the plan is focused on prevention, providing things like Narcan, which can reverse an opioid overdose, and fentanyl testing strips. Those strips only became legal this spring. I think it's really important to just remind ourselves that the opioid epidemic in Wisconsin, as around the country, really began in the late 1990s, and it has been exacerbated in recent years due to the prevalence of fentanyl and other synthetic opioids, leading to, over time, about a 900% increase in opioid overdose deaths in just about a 20-year period of time, between 1999 and 2018. Just uh, locally here in Dane County back in 2014, there were 61 deaths from opioid overdoses, and in 2020, there were 123. And those similar increases of two and three, and even in some cases four times, is a a trend that we are seeing all across the state. And so that is a continuum that starts with prevention, includes harm reduction to save lives, includes treatment, and includes recovery services. All we need is to have the committee's current objection lifted so that we can push the first $6 million, which came into the state at the end of July, has been sitting here for three and a half weeks, is not yet out into communities. We are ready to go. We are ready to push those resources out into communities and to make smart investments with the remainder of the total of about $31 million that is expected. Another effect of the opioid epidemic, a surge in criminal charges related to trafficking and abuse. Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett says that they need help so that law enforcement resources aren't diverted to opioid misuse. We, as law enforcement, stand downstream in the fast-flowing river we call addiction. And we are pulling individuals out of that river on a daily basis. What we need, and with the assistance of the approval of the funds for this, are the resources needed to go upstream. 
and address why people are falling into that fast flowing river so that that can reduce the number of individuals we are constantly pulling out and entering into our criminal justice system. We need a proactive approach and not a continuous reactive approach. As the Dane County Sheriff, I'm here to say that we will not arrest our way out of this opioid pandemic and we need help. The funding has been held up by the Budget Committee due to an anonymous complaint. The Legislative Finance Committee hasn't even set a deadline to release the funding. John Erpenbach, a senator who is part of the Democratic minority on the committee, says even he doesn't know the identity of the anonymous objector. He says none of his Democratic colleagues on the committee made the objection, and he blames the committee's Republican majority. Because what's going on is somewhere in Wisconsin right now, today, has overdosed a couple of minutes ago. Is an Arcan available? Don't know. Would it help? It brings them back to life. And the idea that we could spend $3 million and get Narcan all over the state of Wisconsin is so important. Just absolutely so important. And the Republicans who objected this, they're at a different level of stupid right now. And it's dangerous. And the idea that 12 Republicans said, no, we want to take a further look at this when somebody's going to die tonight. Hopefully it's nobody they know. And I tell you what, if any one of those 12 members have had any sort of personal experience with this issue and they're still objecting, shame on them. Shame on them. So uh, Evan and I and, and other Democrats on the Finance Committee are calling for finance to meet today, this afternoon, tomorrow, whatever, this weekend, whatever it takes for us to get at least that $6 million out the door and start saving some lives. The funds are tied up even as opioid-related deaths and hospitalizations have climbed for more than a decade. In 2020, in the last year with available data, Wisconsin counties provided almost 23,000 people with substance use treatment and services. More than 4,000 of those cases involved opioids alone. In 2017, the CDC estimated an economic cost of $1,845 per Wisconsinite due to opioid abuse. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. When we think of UW-Madison, we think of a progressive institution sitting in the progressive center of the state. And we probably think of the institution as being a leader in sustainability. But a new report shows that, despite their best efforts, the university is lagging behind other major universities in terms of sustainability. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Tyler Katzenberger with the Capital Times about what he found out about sustainability practices on campus. This is a shortened version of their conversation, and the full interview is available on the WORT website. UW-Madison holds itself to being a living model for sustainability, exemplifying values and actions that demonstrate their commitment to stewardship of its resources and the health and well-being of the broader community. That's according to the university's Office of Sustainability website. But does that hold up? According to an independent sustainability tracking system, they actually rank dead last compared to other large institutions across the nation. That's the subject of a new story by news intern with the Capital Times, Tyler Katzenberger, who is joining me now. Tyler, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. So just to start things off here, Tyler, so the university, uh, they were judged by something called STARS, a STARS report to track sustainability at the university. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, what STARS is, is it stands for Sustainability Tracking Assessment and Rating System. So it's a bit of a mouthful, 
But what they do is they evaluate um, a ton of different institutions and workplaces across the nation to basically evaluate, evaluate how they're doing cumulatively with sustainability. So it gets everything from how they dispose of their waste to how they manage transportation to how they manage their greenhouse gas emissions. And so, yeah, UW was one of the schools uh, that did that STARS report. And now they, under those guidelines, under that report, the university ranks well below a lot of other universities across the country. Is that sort of correct there? So, kind of, yeah. The way it works is that UW, they did their first report um, in 2019. Uh, They found out they were doing uh, okay, about 51, 52 points. Uh, They were considered a silver rating. But they wanted to do better. So what they did is they um, sat down, they formed this, this sustainability advisory council. And when they went back and compared themselves to other schools using STARS, they identified these, uh, I think it's roughly 19 peer universities that they compared themselves to as a large public institution. So then in 2022, they went back and did an updated report. And so in that updated report, if you go back and compare them to those same peer institutions that they identified, it turns out that they're actually um, behind every single one of them in their overall score. And so in what ways are they sort of lacking compared to these other large colleges? What are what are some areas that uh, this report sort of identified uh, have some room for improvement? So one of the big things is in academics, um, specifically in students, um, you know, whether or not they're interacting with sustainability in their coursework. So at UW-Madison, um, I think about 50% of students-ish graduate, 50, might be 51, 52, graduate from a school with, or graduate from like a school or department that has uh, sustainability like specifically outlined as one of the target things that they're supposed to learn when they come through the university and complete their degree program. Um, you know, that sounds pretty decent, but at other schools, um, especially the best performers, it's at 100%. Um, And so when I went back and did an analysis of how the university is doing compared to others with academics, that was one of the worst performing areas. Um, Additionally, uh, sustainable investments is another big one. So um, there are some schools who have divested from fossil fuels, which I might talk more about later. Basically, what they did is they said, okay, our endowment fund that we use to fund the university, we're not going to put any of that money into stocks for oil, gas, or coal companies. And so their idea there is that they don't want to be funding, um, you know, these companies that are putting pollutants in the air. Um, So I know Harvard's done that, the University of Minnesota has done that, and at least 30 colleges across the nation have done that. Students here at UW have been trying to get UW to also do that. But um, the Wisconsin Foundation and Alumni Association, which manages endowment funds, they haven't been very transparent about where their money is going. Um, and they've also been opposed to divesting from fossil fuels completely. So that's been a point of contention for the university, and it hasn't looked too great in their STARS report. And so now looking to the future a little bit here, what sort of things is the university working on now to sort of you know try and do better with sustainability on campus? What's, what's coming up here? Yeah, um, that's really one of the things I want to talk about because the university is doing some cool stuff. Um, I mentioned the Green Fund earlier. So uh, it's this rotating pool of money. I think it's, it was 50000 last semester where students from all across campus um, in student organizations, whatever, they can come up with a project and pitch it to the Green Fund. And then the Green Fund decides which projects can get funding to go ahead. 
So there have been some really cool things that have happened off of that. If you ever go by Gordon Dining Hall, um, you can see on the top that there are some solar panels. That was done by a student club. Um, the Electric Eats food truck that's going to be going around campus this fall, it's uh, bright blue color. Uh, they're serving up like locally sourced food, and that was another thing that was kind of funded in part by the Green Fund. Um, there's this cool project on pollinator lawns that, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to talk about in the article, but the people working on it are super, super cool, and they're trying to figure out how UW could maybe uh, better engineer like the grass lawns to be more friendly to pollinators like bees who help our ecosystem thrive and help plants reproduce. Um, they've also made some really good gains on composting. Um, UW initially lost their composting contract um, in 2021, which was a bit of a letdown because it meant that their food scraps were going into the regular waste stream, so like going to the landfill to rot, and that produces a lot of really harmful methane gas. But they worked hard. They found a new composting vendor, and now this fall they're doing a pilot program. So, yeah, UW really is making an effort here. Um, You know, it's just the question is whether or not it can go faster. Well, Tyler, just wrapping things up here a little bit, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Any Anything that we didn't get to that you'd like people to know? You know, I think what I'd like to let people know is that um, the headline is obvious that UW-Madison is last in sustainability, and that's the big takeaway. But I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, UW has had a lot of setbacks over the last few years. Obviously, Chancellor Blank leaving um, last October is going to make things a lot harder to do if you don't have consistent leadership or you don't know who your new leader is going to be. You know, they're trying to figure out this brand new sustainability strategy while leadership is sort of rotating. And that's something that's beyond a lot of stakeholders control. Um, Additionally, uh, the campus staff and students uh, who are trying to implement these solutions, they have to work with a lot of things outside their power, like funding from the state government which doesn't always come to UW based on who's in the legislature and whether or not they want to give UW funding for sustainability or whether or not they even believe climate change is a problem that needs to be addressed. And so that really amounts to some challenges for the people that are working on this. That's not to say, um, you know, that there are places where UW is lacking where it could be doing better, but I don't think, I just don't want people to think that, the staff at UW, the administrators at UW aren't trying. So I, I just want to make that clear, I think, because everybody there, they are trying. Um, but, you know, obviously there seems to be more work to do. I've been talking with Tyler Katzenberger, uh, news intern with the Cap Times, about his story just released today about sustainability over at UW-Madison. You can read the full story online at captimes.com. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Again, thanks for having me. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Though waterfalls are often a park's marquee attraction, their impact can still be underappreciated. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, Sean Bull takes a look at falls both natural and man-made and ponders their significance. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks 
an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. This episode may contain sound clips of flowing water. If you don't have easy access to a restroom, you may wish to change the channel and come back in 10 minutes to hear the weather. Though, there's always a chance Rob predicts rain, in which case, uh, I don't know, you're out of luck, I guess. If you have to pee, you've been warned. Now, let's see how many times I can say waterfall in the next few minutes. Waterfalls are cool. This series is usually based on my personal opinion, but this is one statement I don't think I have to justify. Waterfalls are cool is as close to fact as any opinion gets. No one in the history of man has ever been anti-waterfall, and even people who are neutral on the topic probably just have yet to experience one in person. Today, I'd like to discuss waterfalls at length, covering what they mean to our culture, and highlighting some you can travel to see within a reasonable distance. So, you're standing on a riverbank, looking at a waterfall. The rush of water pushes all other sounds to the background. What do you feel? The repetitive noise drowns out your background thoughts. You can contemplate if you want, but it's just as easy to think about nothing. A waterfall invokes peace and facilitates clarity of mind. This is reflected in how we portray waterfalls in popular culture. Think of a movie scene that features a waterfall. What did the falls mean symbolically to the story? Often, a natural waterfall serves as a reprieve. In a quiet place, the main characters live their lives in constant fear of monsters which will hunt them down with supernatural hearing. Our heroes speak only in sign language and take care to muffle their every action. But when they travel to a waterfall, its white noise lets them relax for a while. They can speak aloud without fearing for their lives. The peace a falls represents isn't always so literal. In the first Hunger Games movie, Katniss finds her friend Peeta injured but mercifully alive, hiding amongst the rocks of a waterfall. They've been running for a day straight from one deadly hazard to the next. Amid the rushing water, they're reunited and can at least take comfort in knowing they're both still alive. So that's natural waterfalls. People have always been drawn to cascades for their beauty and the tranquility they inspire. But the symbolism of an artificial waterfall is more complex. Some are grand statements of financial and engineering prowess, and some are utilitarian, serving an actual purpose. Let's talk about some of those first. Every day, the residents of Dane County produce millions upon millions of gallons of sewage. Most of that makes its way to the Madison Metro Sewerage District, where the waste is separated from water, and that water is treated. Once the water is clean, it's returned roughly to where it came from, via two pipes. The majority rejoins the Ahara River watershed via a pipe that leads to Badfish Creek. The rest is pumped out into the Sugar River watershed, where it flows into Badger Mill Creek, just east of Verona. As this water exits the pipe, it tumbles over a pile of boulders, aerating it for the fish below to enjoy. You can easily see this part of the water cycle at work, as it's visible from the Military Ridge bike trail. You can often find artificial waterfalls within exhibits at zoos. This, I think, is for a few reasons. Much like at the Badger Mill, it naturally aerates the water, which at a zoo might otherwise become stagnant. 
Of course, a waterfall provides immersion for the people viewing, much like the painted landscape on the exhibit's far wall. Most importantly, I think it helps the animals act more natural. As an example, consider the river otters at the Henry Vilas Zoo. Their exhibit is right in the middle of the zoo, and the otters are on display from two sides. As they swim and play on the rocks, people leer at them from the other side of glass walls. These people are loud, they stare, and I'm sure that makes the animals a little nervous. But the river otters, at least, have a three-foot waterfall right in the middle of their enclosure. I would imagine this benefits them in the same way as it might benefit a person. It provides white noise and reduces the impact of the chaotic world around them. If we're honest with ourselves, most artificial waterfalls are not built with a practical function in mind. They are, at the very least, an aesthetic choice, if not an outright flex by their owner. After all, there's power in a fall's very nature. They exist in the wild because water carved away the weak rock below the cascade. Only the strong can survive a stream's constant onslaught, so constructing one where it shouldn't exist is a display of power, wealth, and ingenuity. Such is the case with Thunder Bay Falls, one of the natural wonders of Northwest Illinois. At least, I thought that was the case, as I saw a picture of it in an Illinois tourism brochure. I paid the falls a visit, and it turns out that not only is it closed to the public, it isn't natural in the slightest. Marketing failure aside, Thunder Bay Falls is a great example of the purpose of an artificial waterfall. It belongs to the Galena Territory, an association of homes surrounding two golf courses and an artificial lake. That lake is held in place by an earthen dam, but rather than have a plain concrete spillway for excess water, they chose to make a beautifully intricate waterfall with lots of little details that make it look completely natural. Though it's closed to the public, there is a viewing area, presumably for members of the country club. Surprisingly, you can find a more accessible waterfall at a private company. Epic Systems is famous for the over-the-top architecture of their campus, so it comes as no surprise that they have one of the best fake waterfalls in the area. Directly west of their visitor parking lot, a stream meanders through a courtyard between their original cluster of buildings. The stream gradually builds, passing over little rocks until it tumbles into a wide pool 20 feet below. Maybe it's because I look like a software developer, but I've never had any issue walking around Epic after hours, and the waterfall is always a highlight. Those are examples of waterfalls that attempt to look somewhat natural, but some of the more interesting ones are stylized to fit in their environment. High-end hotels and shopping malls will often have waterfalls that look pretty, but don't make much of a splash. Often, these are a multi-story slab of marble or glass, with water rolling down, carefully controlled. When Madison College remodeled its flagship Truex campus, they planned to have such a waterfall in their main atrium. Ultimately, they cut back on that element to save money, opting instead for a simulated falls. In the Truex Gateway today, hidden speakers play the sound of running water, and a three-story wall of sandstone sits in the waterfall's place. Cascading over the rocks is not water, but vertical bars of LED lights. They change color often, but default to blue. A reminder of what could have been. Before I go, here's a few quick recommendations. The only truly nearby falls are at Pewitt's Nest by Baraboo. They're small, but worth a trip on their own. If you want to go bigger, go to northern Wisconsin. 
Copper Falls State Park absolutely lives up to the hype. It's beautiful, especially in autumn. Similarly, Bond Falls in the UP is a great weekend trip. And for the summer, Matheson State Park in Illinois is one of my absolute favorites. It's the only one of these parks to which I'd bring a swimsuit. I'll link information to all of these in the digital version at wardfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, for a month that started out significantly warmer and wetter than normal over its first 10 days, August has since uh, rebalanced to almost exactly its normals in both of those categories as we approach the final week. We'll air a little on the cooler and wetter side tomorrow, but I think that'll self-correct again in the following couple of days. We hit 83... We hit 83 degrees, I believe it was, this afternoon, which is as warm as we've gotten, actually, since back on the 6th of the month when we hit 91. So, uh, as you can see, August has been surprisingly temperate this year for a month that can, of course, be quite hot and quite wet as well. The high clouds that you can see starting to drift overhead this evening are from an area of low pressure approaching us from central Minnesota. Uh, Nothing terribly impressive, uh, basically just a kind of low spot between the two surface high pressure cells, one exiting southeast away from us and the other incoming approaching from southern Manitoba. Uh, Not terribly well organized, this little low pressure circulation, but if you have a look at it on the visible satellite imagery that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you can see a bit of leftward curl in the fiber and the cloud fields to our uh, west, especially on the wider view of the upper Midwest, which also has the surface wind streamlines superimposed on it. Uh, As is often the case with systems this time of year, when the northern hemisphere is about as thermally homogenized as it's going to get, pressure gradients and winds through the depth of the air column are fairly weak, so uh, well-organized thunderstorms aren't too much of a threat as we go overnight into tomorrow and the system slides past us. But a deeply warm air column means that a good amount of moisture is potentially suspended overhead, so a slow-moving downpour or two are not out of the question. After the main body of precipitation passes in the wee hours of tomorrow morning, a number of the high-resolution models show the low-level circulation slowing down over eastern Wisconsin and then re-sprouting with pop-up showers tomorrow midday and afternoon as the upper low passes overhead concurrent with peak heating. Uh, Those showers are likely to be more prevalent east and north of Madison and less so to the south and west. The incoming surface high pressure from Canada then should dry us out and generally clear us as we go into the day Friday and on into Saturday. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, we'll have a stronger low pressure system approaching across the Canadian border region and passing to our northwest as we go into and through this coming weekend. 
And while that had been producing warm air advection precipitation here as early as midday Saturday on the runs a couple of days ago, the more recent modeling has shown a trend towards both slowing the egress of our surface high-pressure cell and deepening that low a little further north compared to earlier runs. And between those two factors, that auger's perhaps staying dry right on through Saturday into early Sunday. Indeed, the Canadian and the European models are now keeping us dry through the entire weekend upcoming. So uh, keep an ear out for possible changes to later forecasts, since the models are obviously still seeming to be developing their solutions. But it may be the precipitation holds west and north of us through much of this coming upcoming five-day period, or at least after tonight. Uh, and getting back to tonight, uh, the sky should see a steady increase in high and then mid-level clouds over the coming few hours with showers and thunderstorms then working into the area from the west on towards about midnight or 1 a.m. There's a bit of variability on the coverage and location across the models of these incoming showers, but this uh, first wave driven by a strengthening and veering low-level jet should, I think, exit east of us uh, at least east of most of the listening area by around dawn or shortly thereafter tomorrow. Temperatures will uh, increase to the mid-60s after that. Uh, on uh, Excuse me, temperatures will drop to the mid-60s later tonight on southerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour, somewhat gustier around uh, any thunderstorms. Tomorrow will be uh, generally cloudy with showery precipitation still uh, exiting east and southeast out of the area probably early on, with some lifting and perhaps even some uh, breaking of skies before additional showers then develop and uh, generally move southward in more scattered fashion through uh, the midday or afternoon hours. Again, those will be more prevalent north and east and uh, sparser south and west. Temperatures will be held in the low 70s tomorrow with cloud cover and some precipitation on light southwesterly winds veering northwest in the midday hours. Sky should break towards evening, though we may uh, then see some low clouds and perhaps some fog redeveloped as we go overnight and the temperatures drop towards 60 on light north and northeasterly winds. Friday should be mostly sunny after the low-level moisture mixes back out, uh, probably with some cumulus growth in the afternoon. Uh, north to northeast winds will be up at 3 to 7 miles per hour. will uh, drop into the upper 50s after late-day clearing with continued light northeasterly winds veering more easterly. And fog may again develop going into Saturday, especially in low-lying areas. And Saturday should see uh, passing high clouds from activity upstream over the plains, but otherwise I'm looking for the day to be dry and partly sunny. High temperatures should be in the upper 70s, maybe 80 if the skies stay clear long enough. On uh, south to uh, southeasterly winds up at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Clouds should re-thicken then overnight into Sunday, and showers and thunderstorms become more likely that day after what will be a warm overnight in the mid-60s on southerly winds, which will come up to about 8 to 12 miles per hour on the day Sunday. Again, uh, some of the models are showing that even most of Sunday stays dry, so... Uh, Cross your fingers. At the moment, the temperature is 77 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 59. The uh, winds are out of the southwest at 9 miles per hour. Uh, some passing cirrus overhead with a few altocumulus. Last I looked out, up at about 14,000 feet and just a few lower cumulus below that. Uh, the barometer's steady at 30.01 inches of mercury.
It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the last week of August in the 1960s, when Ed Garvey became a national student leader, peace activists protested the vice president, and the mayor said no, no to go-go dancers. Stu Levitan does the time traveling on this week's Madison in the 60s. All They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the last week of August 1961 Ed Garvey, the immediate past president of the Wisconsin Student Association is elected president of the National Student Association at a stormy 10-day NSA convention held on the University of Wisconsin campus Garvey, a sharp critic of the House Un-American Activities Committee, who vows to continue the NSA's support for the Southern Civil Rights Action, was considered the moderate in a campaign against an alumnus of Oberlin College. Soon after taking office, the Burlington native learns a closely held secret which he keeps confidential, that the association has for many years received funding from the Central Intelligence Agency. And concerns about nuclear war have led 5,000 area homeowners to build some sort of fallout shelter, ranging from improvised shelters and cisterns to full facilities. And Madison Civil Defense Director Richard C. Wilson wants that number to grow much higher. He says everyone should build a shelter in the southwest corner of their basement and stock it for about two weeks, the time it will take for radiation to drop to a safe level. Madison will likely suffer directly in case of a nuclear war, he tells area builders, because the city is, quote, surrounded by targets, especially Truax Airfield. The city is waiving assessments and building permit fees for shelters that meet federal standards, but not waiving building permits or the need to follow zoning regulations. 1962. Madison has its first director of public works, Edwin Duzinski, previously the first public works director for both Appleton and Cudahy. And Mayor Henry Reynolds finally gets Edwin C. Conrad confirmed as city attorney, a year after the council twice refused to confirm him. Conrad has been acting city attorney since Alton Hessler's fatal traffic accident in March. 1963. The University of Wisconsin announces the appointment of a new professor of history, Harvey Goldberg, UW-PhD 1950, a specialist in French history, particularly its revolutionary period. Goldberg, who did his doctoral work under President Fred Harvey Harrington, has been at Ohio State University. 1965. Bearing signs reading, Get Out of Vietnam, about 50 picketers organized by Evan Stark in the Student Peace Center protests the appearance of Vice President Hubert Humphrey at the Union Theater. Inside, Humphrey references the demonstration, telling cheering delegates to the National Student Association Convention, quote, 
If they can show us how to get out of Vietnam without the communists getting in, we'll put the placards around here in the Hall of Fame rather than in the Hall of Shame. St. Paul's African Methodist Episcopal Church, a spiritual cornerstone for Madison's black residents, hold its last service before being demolished. The church was built by Bethel Lutheran in 1887, bought by St. Paul's and moved to 625 East Dayton Street in 1902, and moved to 631 East Dayton Street in 1928. The congregation will move into the former Central Lutheran Church building, 402 East Mifflin Street. The State Building Commission approves construction of the $3.8 million Gymnasium Unit 2 on the Western Campus. The university will now move ahead with its plans to demolish the Red Gym Armory and build a high-rise guesthouse and underground auditorium on that lakefront site. Mayor Otto Feske issues guidelines for how much skin the Go-Go girls can show at the four city discotheques and how they should dance. Dancers should be covered at least to the level, quote, as is acceptable on city beaches, the new rule state, adding, quote, sensual elements should not become so blatant that they completely overshadow all other elements of the dancing or become the dominant interests of the spectators. Police Chief Wilbur Emery, citing what he calls, quote, a breakdown in moral standards due to the growing number of discotheques, had asked Feske to state the standards. And the coach of the Madison Mustangs semi-pro football team, Hank Olshansky, quits after a season-opening defeat and is replaced by former UW star fullback Merritt Norville. A three-time letter winner who played in the 1963 Rose Bowl, Norville is also a UW grad student and probation officer for Dane County. 1966. Park Plaza, on the 2300 block of South Park Street, has its grand opening. The 300,000-square-foot center, featuring a Kroger supermarket, Rennebaum Rexall drugstore, and Ben Franklin variety store, was developed by a doctor's group from Chicago. In 1968, Nelson Cummings, the first director of the new Madison Urban League, files complaints with city and state officials alleging housing discrimination. Cummings, 34, has been living in a motel while his family remains in South Bend, Indiana, as he tries to rent a three-bedroom house in Madison. He says he may have to quit in October if he can't find a landlord to rent proper housing to a black family, but he eventually does find a house on Odana Road. The Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development approves a $3.5 million grant for the 21-acre $5.4 million urban renewal project in the 600 to 900 blocks of University Avenue to be developed cooperatively by the city, university, and the Lake Park Corporation, the organization of current property owners and businessmen with former area alderman James Goulet as its president. The federal funds will be used to buy and raise the 52 properties. Another HUD grant of $200,000 will be used for residential relocation. The city tab of about $2 million will be spent on area infrastructure, including street improvements, storm sewers, and traffic signals. Two days later, the Madison Redevelopment Authority approves spending $800,000 to purchase the first 14 properties, with most of the rest being purchased by the end of the year. 
and the new fire station number one opens in the 300 block of West Dayton Street, replacing the historic station at 15 South Webster. The second floor conference room is named the Parkinson Room, in memory of Dan Monk Parkinson, the firefighter who died in the State Street Fire of January 1966. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, protective services personnel honoring WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. That does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Tegan Carter was our reporter. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggehaup produced it. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>